Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. On this episode of Off the Page, Jones Lecturer Shannon Pufal reads her personal essay, Lucky. Shannon Pufal grew up in rural Kansas, She teaches at Stanford University, where she was a Stegner Fellow in fiction. For many years, she worked as a freelance music writer and bartender. Her essays, on topics ranging from 18th century America to her childhood, have appeared in the Three Penny Review, the Paris Review, the New York Review of Books, and elsewhere. She lives in Monterey, California, with her wife and their dog. Las Vegas in the 90s was a terrific place to be young. In few other places was this true. Steve Wynn and other developers had used their mountains of money to nearly, but not quite fully, transform the city from a seedy backwater into a sunny haven for the middle class. In the early 90s, downtown Las Vegas was still dirty and strange, not quite a mobster's paradise, but not for families either. Fremont Street lay open to the sky above and to heavy traffic, which meant sidewalk hawkers and hookers and mean-looking hatted men smoking in doorways. A common sight. Prostitutes on big cruiser bicycles, tall curving handlebars like Harleys, riding up and down the street while at each corner stood teenagers snapping thick cards against their palms and handing one to every passerby. Each card was printed with a photo of one of these very cyclists or some other beautiful woman, not cycling but posed in another kind of readiness, along with a phone number and an apothem about companionship or temerity. Prostitution was not legal in Las Vegas and had not been for nearly 50 years, but no one seemed to care. Presumably the hookers did, when a raid scattered them or when they needed help, when they were arrested or hurt or sometimes killed. But I did not think about any of that when I was 14 and 15, out on Fremont Street alone while my mother and my grandmother gambled. I thought about what it would be like to touch a woman the way the pretty women on the cards invited me to touch them. Whenever a teenager snapped a card and held it out to me, I took it. I assembled a collection of hookers until I had a stack as thick as a poker deck, and with this I made my own game, matching the cards to the women on the street and imaginatively to other women in other parts of the city the showgirls outside the Glitter Gulch, cocktail waitresses in dark hose, young wives in the elevators, and sometimes to the girls at my high school, brunette farm girls with big white teeth. The cards were like the decks at the blackjack tables, representative of value and possibility. Some afternoons, while my mother napped and my grandmother played video poker at the Fitzgerald's bar, I picked up the phone and traced the numbers. Sometimes I had money in my pocket from sneaking the slots or because grandma hit a royal the night before. I could pay, and that meant it did not matter that I was a girl, or only 14. I wasn't sure if I wanted to touch women whose job it was to be touched. I wanted real affection, 
but the price of real affection was set so high in my other daily economy. One afternoon, I was outside the plaza having a cigarette while my mom and grandma played poker at the bar. The bartender, a sweet guy named Mac, always poured heavy for them. I remember it was summer and hotter than hell. I was probably almost 16. A cyclist I'd seen several times before rode by and caught me looking. She stopped a few feet from me and straddled the bike. You're barking up the wrong tree, she said. She was blonde and 40-ish, older than my mother was then. I didn't know what to say, so I nodded. She was probably right about any number of trees. She stood a moment staring at me and then smiled. You having any luck at the table, she asked. I don't play the tables, I said. No shit, she said. Then got another cigarette? I shook my head. Stole that one, huh? I nodded. A silence lingered between us, and then I held out the cigarette and she laughed. You sharing or giving, the woman asked. I didn't answer, stunned as I was. Giving then, she said, and put the cigarette between her lips and mounted the bike and rode off down South Main. I sat there a while in the heat trying to figure out what I felt. The exchange had been more complex than I imagined. My grandmother came out with a cup full of quarters and stood next to me. You're too young to smoke, she said, and handed me the cup. But she was looking up the street where the woman had disappeared, and when she looked back, she smiled at me. What a place, huh, she said. My grandmother, a boot-wearing, chain-smoking Catholic, made a small fortune selling imported cars in the 70s with her Methodist husband. My grandfather was a man who loved ice cream and children. They were a poor match in everything but business. For many years, my grandmother traveled by car through the Southwest with a female companion, first a much younger doctor named Pam, and then an older Dutch divorcee named Tatiana Vandertrap. She loved a good hamburger and a clean bathroom and used to say she knew every McDonald's from Topeka to Los Angeles. These friendships were oddly intense and capricious. My grandmother spent a good part of the year with Pam or Tati, but often she was on the outs with one or both of them. Their quarrels left her shipwrecked in her dark paneled living room in Topeka, where she watched game shows and dozed through the day until something in her resolve snapped. Then she would get her hair set and the car tuned up and take off on her own. But she had no one to gamble with. The absence of her friends provoked her fickle generosity and in need of companionship, she bought my mother and sometimes me plane tickets to meet her in Las Vegas. By the time I was 18, I had already been to Las Vegas a dozen times. My grandmother snuck me cocktails and 20s for the cherry slots. Walking up and down Fremont Street in the middle of the night or near dawn was the only real experience I had of urban life. My own parents were working class. My father had been raised Missouri Synod Lutheran by his German parents, and we lived on the Kansas farm they'd bought from homesteaders. My parents, my sister and I, lived in the big farmhouse, and my paternal grandparents lived 50 feet away in the farmhand's house. Their influence was entire. The influence of Kansas was entire. In Las Vegas in those days, the underage could move through the casinos but were not supposed to stop for more than 10 or 15 seconds by any machine or table. Back then, the slot machines still took actual coins, so we carried with us half-gallon plastic cups printed with the names of the casinos. There were small hand wipes everywhere for cleaning off the dark grime left by the coins. Security was minimal and more attentive to drunks and cheats, so I was able to play a few dollars at a time sometimes more and longer if it was crowded. 
I was a broad-shouldered girl with a short haircut and quietly intense. I wore ball caps and Carhartt jackets, and from behind, I looked like a middle-aged man. Many times I got away with playing an hour or more before someone's drifting attention made me wary. I never dared to actually sit down, but when I stood just behind my grandmother, I could reach over her shoulder and press the buttons, or pretend to be waiting for her while I slyly fed my own machine. Mostly I lost, as everyone mostly loses. But every longer session of loss was punctuated by fantastic wins, almost always when the money was nearly gone or despair had arrived to turn the thrilling act of gambling illegally into something depraved. The images on the slot reels would spin and finally settle in a row of perfect unbroken sameness, cherry, 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 or 777. And the lights would flash and the klaxon sound, and I would stand back from the machine and close my eyes, sated because I was suddenly the object of good fortune, and because such small fates always seemed to prove somehow that I was all right. What a feeling that was. You don't have to be a gambler to know it. The long, daily boredom of life interrupted, suspended by improbability. The erasure of constraints imposed by one's family or one's culture, the connection humans feel to God or to other humans when they are at the center of a coincidence. Daily life is long and boring, yet filled with obstacles and choices of real consequence. At its end is the fact of death. But every quarter or dollar chip, every spin or deal, is a single door opening into the future, a future emptied of everything but that one outcome, win or lose. How many people are walking the earth this very moment, hoping for that feeling? For decades now, Fremont Street has been covered by a barrel vault canopy, closed to traffic and unlicensed business, and the prominent site is not the hawkers or the cyclists, but a laser light show that often features bald eagles and stadium rock. If you want to collect your own hooker deck, you have to go to the strip and actually walk it, which is a huge endeavor in the desert heat, along sidewalks too narrow for the crowds. You have to pass by the legless men and drugged-out women who perch at the edge of the bright fantasy and ask for a coin or two for some small souvenir of the fantasy's promise. Part of the city's transformation has been to limit foot traffic, or rather to delimit it, so that the huge resorts are set 200 feet back from the street and connected with breezeways and automated guideways high above the desert. Where you go and how you get there are determined in advance by architects and engineers. The street life now happens elsewhere, where most tourists do not wander. When I was a teenager on Fremont Street, the whole American institution of gambling was undergoing a transformation. The slot machines I played in the early 90s with their big black handles and their actual reels, are now completely antiquated. Modern slots are controlled by circuit boards, not gravity, and they offer so many winning and losing combinations and so many animated details that often only the lights and the bells tell you if you've won or lost. Very little of the experience is material. Until the final reel plunks into place, your money is held and risks abeyance and nothing else need be known or done. And yet the slot machine has become one of the biggest generators of casino profit, tribal wealth, and tax revenue in the U.S. They are played by tens of millions of Americans each year in casinos and online. 
Today's slots are the offspring of much simpler devices popularized in the late 19th century, which dispensed candy, fortunes, or love advice. The development of modern slots, where money itself was the reward for money, added the element of chance to the transaction. One might spend money and get nothing at all. People love that sort of thing. Many gambling historians argue that this advance allowed the casino to thrive by creating the sense that something besides one's own will determined the result. Most of our modern casino games began as fortune-telling practices in rural and indigenous communities. Our inclination has been through the centuries to use these games to tap into the unexplainable and the unknowable, and in that way learn something about who we are or might be. This power to reveal and define also makes gambling a perfect mode of control. The great empires of the 18th and 19th centuries traded or stole what became casino games along with religion and microbes. They used them to swindle the less powerful by exploiting the sense of destiny and propriety generated by games of chance. Think of the Bertrams playing speculation in Mansfield Park, a novel shadowed by the link between love and colonialism. Most gambling legislation in the last 30 years has been enacted piecemeal, state by state and often game by game, for the purposes of regulating economic advantage. Gambling legislation literally sets the odds by mandating how much individual games or casinos must pay out. This number is always well below 100%. The gambler's losses are instantiated as a matter of law. Luck has little to do with it. But we don't really care about that. I certainly didn't. Luck, as both transcendence and approval, was what made me feel free as a kid. Free to participate in an economy that promised jackpots, financial or effective, and in a place that seemed to suspend all the normal rules. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Setting apart the experience of luck allows us to retain the feeling that gambling is an act of transgression, even while it is increasingly quotidian and regulated. This should sound familiar to all of us living in the 21st century. The sense that a game of chance asks or answers a private, wordless question, and that luck reveals our moral worth, is central to the magic of many modern things. The strategies used by casinos and gaming machines are some of the same used by social media sites and other algorithm-based economies that rely on advertising revenue and personal disclosure. The psychological and technical systems originally built for casinos have found great admirers in Silicon Valley, where slots are seen for what they are, loud, lighted Skinner boxes. The goal of the casino is virtually the same as that of dating apps, Twitter, and iPhone games, to trap the user in a loop of loss and pleasure, approval and refusal. As Gia Tolentino put it in the April 29th issue of The New Yorker, such platforms, quote, encourage compulsive use by offering forms of social approval, as though you're playing a slot machine that tells you whether or not people love you, end quote. Indeed, what our obsessions reveal, what casinos exploit and also undermine, is our desire for luck in a divine emotive form, unmediated by the constraints of modern life. Gambling technologies are designed to mimic this karmic affection, and to obscure their aims by preventing us from looking ahead and later from looking back. Most importantly, they are meant to make us feel that their use is a marker of personal freedom and that they exist in some essential way to tell us who we are. And yet, 
I did learn who I was by playing the slots. I did encounter luck that way. I was free in Las Vegas because my choices were no longer constrained by my family or my region, by my class or my sex, that they were constrained by something else, something new and unsaid and therefore unknown to me, is merely a truth of growing up. It wasn't winning or losing that made me free. I don't remember any particular jackpots or how much money was won or lost. Such things are merely representative. What I remember is what happened next, when the bells rang out and people turned their heads to see who had been touched by fortune. My grandmother would smile around her cigarette and take the crowd's attention so that I would not be revealed. When they moved on, she would slap my arm and say, okay, baby. We would turn then back to our own machines and our own private accounting with chance. That moment brought me everything I wanted, a sense that I was chosen by luck and that my grandmother adored me. Outside were women whom I might actually touch, whose affection was not governed by any precept that excluded me. They might approach me with a candor that admitted my own strangeness. The ringing bells marked my place in the real ontology, where I was indeed loved. In 1994, when I was 14, there were approximately 15 legally operating modern casinos outside Nevada. In 2019, there are nearly 1,000 in 44 states. Recent statistics suggest that about 2.6% of Americans have a gambling addiction. Considering the number of casinos in the U.S. and the number of people who visited them last year, a self-reported 30% of the adult population, or almost 70 million people. This is a vanishingly small number. The great majority of people who visit casinos, even frequently, are not gambling addicts. Yet, the American Gambling Association's definition of gambling addiction as a risk compulsion that significantly disrupts daily life seems to me an affliction suffered by us all. Each year, 70 million Americans hope for good fortune in a rigged game, but many more are chasing another kind of private accounting, whether they think of it that way or not. For most of us, gamblers or smartphone users, luck is about the ability to risk ourselves in the void and yet sustain minimal loss, which, it hardly needs saying, is neither luck nor risk. Las Vegas, like so many other places and things in the 21st century, has turned luck to brief anodyne. It was Max Weber, writing a century ago, who proposed we'd vanquish God and the divine and thus made, quote, calculable and predictable what in an earlier age had seemed governed by chance, end quote. Luck, by any number of definitions, is determined not just by the event, but by what follows. Most of us qualify what follows by proximate and not ultimate circumstances. The luck of drawing an ace depends on what cards you need and what game you're playing, and then on whether or not you win. Hardly anyone thinks about what winning that hand may cause a year or a decade down the line. It would be maddening to think about such things. Certainly, we don't call that kind of accounting luck. Etymologically, luck has taken over from an obsolete meaning of speed as abundance or power, as in Godspeed, tying the notion of fortune to the experience of great velocity. But maybe we should think of luck in longer, slower, and ultimate arcs, involving both the company and the fate of others. When the arc of luck is long and complicated, when we choose to look at it this way, we find proof that our freedom is meaningful, whether we risk it or not. 
My grandmother spent her last years on the bad side of Topeka in a nursing home. She could have afforded some place much nicer, but it was the only facility in the county that would allow her to smoke whenever she wanted to. I visited her there many times. The anxious focus that had driven her charisma and her restlessness had turned into an anile repetition of facts. She had been born in Holton, Kansas before the war, and when she died, my mother would inherit her diamonds. Once she won a poker jackpot in Laughlin so improbable, the real sharks came by to talk with her and shake her hand. She had been married, but now she was a widow. I missed her long before she was dead. We had a graveside service on a summer day, and she was lowered into the dry ground. I was the only one to speak. The rest of my family huddled under the tent out of the sun. The folding chairs caught the hot wind and sailed off across the cemetery. They lay against the headstones, and no one went to retrieve them. I told as much of the truth as I could, and when I was finished, my grandmother's children and her grandchildren fled the tent and began to drink and talk of themselves. Tati was dead, and Pam had moved to Glendale. My grandmother, in her misery, had estranged everyone but me. What I didn't say at her funeral. One night, long ago in Las Vegas, she and I sat smoking on the curb, watching the hookers ride and the smoke spill from the open doorways. Fremont Street narrowed and disappeared under the constellating lights of the Plaza Car Park. Without looking at me, she said that had she been born when I was born, she could have been a lesbian. She smoked and looked past me into the lights, and because I was young and embarrassed, I said something stupid like, good for you. She laughed, threw her head back and laughed for several seconds. Just luck, really, she said. She turned and smiled at me then. I remember that just behind her head, Vegas Vicky snapped out her neon boot and appeared to kick my grandmother in the ear. I smiled back and let the conversation in there. I had no idea what to say. But God, the questions I should have asked. Not least what she meant by luck. Bad luck to have been born too soon? Or good luck to desire whatever she desired? Perhaps her girlfriends, but more likely just some form of freedom. Or good luck for me, getting to live now. Or maybe bad luck for me, and good luck for her, for being born too early and missing a sad fate like mine. I like to think now that she meant good luck for us. To know each other and to be together in a place so wonderfully strange. We think of luck the way the modern world created by casinos has taught us to think of it, as personal, individual, and private. Good luck is getting into the college you want or hitting the jackpot. In this way, luck is reduced to something finite. It has very little to do with the feeling I had at 15, when the klaxon rang out and I pleased my grandmother, or when, for the briefest moment, we sat together as two dykes, lucky to be alive. You can find more of Shannon's work on her website, shannonprufall.com, and you can also purchase her recent novel on Swift Horses, available in bookstores now. Hi, Shannon. Thank you so much for sharing that and for being here on Off the Page. I guess my first question is just what was the inspiration for this piece? I know you write a lot of nonfiction, both memoir and more critical historical work. And I know that gambling is obviously a big theme in your fiction as well. I'm just curious what the inspiration for this particular piece of memoir was. I've been to Las Vegas many times. 
And I really wanted to write about that moment in Las Vegas, that sort of historical moment of the kind of mid 90s before it became the tourist destination that we now understand it to be, right? And particularly along the strip with all those like now iconic buildings like the MGM and the Luxor and the shape of a pyramid and the miniature Paris and, you know, the miniature, I think there's a miniature Venice now, you know, where it really embraced its simulacra. I think I wanted to write about the Las Vegas before all of that happened and my experiences there when it was still a place that felt deviant and a place that you could go and feel as if you were still in some ways on the fringes of what was the ordinary sort of 20th century late capitalist world. Now that's the world, right? I mean, you go there and and it is the embodiment of 21st century late capitalism. But at the time, it still felt marginal in a way that was really appealing. And I wanted to write about that. I'm curious, you know, you're a writer who has a background in the study of literature and who draws a lot on knowledge of cultural history in the United States. And then to combine that with memoir and from pieces of your own life, I'm curious, just in the crafting of a piece like this, at what point do you look back on these experiences you had when you were 14 and 15 and see them in a context of the transformation of Las Vegas or in the context of this sort of uber capitalism? How do you make those connections, I guess, between the sort of personal and the scholarly in the, in the writing of a piece like this? I think for me, it's very often that I encounter then some kind of theory or history that illuminates for me an experience that I've had, you know, where I had some question about it beyond my own emotional life. And encountering then those things in other places really helped me understand, like, what was it that was special about this? Or what was it that felt so strange about this moment? And I think that confluence is really productive. I don't know how I would write about my own life without placing it in those sort of larger contexts. I'm not sure that my life has very much meaning, actually, (laughs) without those contexts. So, And that's, I think, in general, the kind of writer that I am. I'm interested in the milieu, not more than the people interacting in the milieu, but, but understanding how the milieu is impacting the kinds of things that people have to say to each other, the ways in which they feel love or don't. That's sort of the process. I have to gather and have other people explain to me what it was that happened. <laughs> yeah. Is that a process that requires a lot of revision? Like in a piece like this, does, is there a lot that ends up on the cutting room floor? There always is. Right. I mean, there always is. I think of early drafts as, you know, for me, really being about discovery. You know, where is this writing going to lead you? What kinds of things do you know that are intuitive or tacit that you have to bring forward into your consciousness in the writing? And and a lot of the time that's about figuring something out for yourself that the reader is actually smart enough to know before you in a sense. So, you know, you write out those explanatory sentences um, and you do that because you need to understand it. But by the time you've gotten there, the reader is way ahead of you and you cut, you have to cut them out, um, which is often really sad, right? Because you've worked super hard for them and then you have to get rid of them. There's actually a lot about gambling and the history of gambling that ended up on the cutting room floor. It just drew away too much and for too long from the drama of the of the personal story. I've got at least six paragraphs on the history of slot machines. 
So those will go somewhere sometime. Often it's the other way around, though. You know, often for me, it's it's an essay starts from a personal experience and leads me into something much more evaluative or expository and the personal just kind of falls away because it it doesn't it isn't really needed actually to illuminate whatever the concept or phenomenon is that I'm interested in. So sometimes it works the other way around. And this essay draws on a lot of the material or on the milieu that in, inspired your novel Vegas and gambling but also the character of your grandmother, who I believe was uh, at least loosely an inspiration for the protagonist of your novel on Swift Horses. I guess I'm just curious, you know, when you when you iterate it as fiction, what does that allow you versus grappling with the facts of life? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, yes, my grandmother was really an inspiration for the novel, but also because she took me to a lot of the places that the novel deals with. And it was in that way sort of foundational, just in terms of being a young person who's building their knowledge of the world. That knowledge got built in California and the Southwest and gambling dens and casinos because of my grandmother. I think for me, the nonfiction is often about like turning over insights that the fiction will make useful or dramatic. I feel like I'm often saying to students in any of my classes, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, like you're not making an argument, you're making a drama. And so for me, there are two different ways of making drama. One is, you know, nonfiction is a kind of intellectual drama. Like, how can I present to you an archive, maybe that doesn't convince you of something, but that illuminates something about the world that was nascent or in some way unsayable? I mean, I hope that's a grand suggestion, but I hope that I've done that from time to time at least. And I think in fiction, it's it's much more about creating a drama that produces emotion. And I think there are different modalities that one genre embraces more than another. So for instance, I find it much easier and more productive to be lyrical in fiction, that much more can be done through lyrical description for instance, than can be in a nonfiction essay, where what you need really is a different kind of emotional response from the reader that doesn't admit as much lyricism or something else. So I feel like writing novels is my is my calling. And so I do think of nonfiction very often as being mostly in the service of turning over insight that the fiction will make use of in some way. It's interesting, Shannon, what you just said about the lyrical. I was reading a review recently of a very high-profile nonfiction writer whose name I won't drop right here. But the review was sort of criticizing them in this work of nonfiction of kind of hiding behind the lyrical and sort of, of sort of using passages of lyricism to, I think, evade engaging with their argument. I thought that was really interesting as someone who has never really written proper nonfiction. That is interesting. And I think that's definitely a real possibility. I mean, I think you see this in other ways, too, in nonfiction. And again, not naming names, but, you know, you move up to the crux of an argument or the place in which a writer needs to come to some kind of concrete or communicable solution or answer or determination. And there's just, I mean, there's literally white space where it's just kind of cobbled together, in a sense, rather than reaching for real conclusion. So I I dislike that. Other people don't, right? I mean, it's it's on the one hand just an aesthetic difference. 
But on the other, I think there's something important about making a claim and sticking to it. I think that our great nonfiction writers did exactly that. You don't see James Baldwin like falling into lyricism instead of making a point about the human heart. I I wanted to ask about um, Fremont Street, where this essay takes place. You you write about the transformation it's undergone in the last 20 years. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about, um, as someone coming from a rural background, this is your experience of urbanity, like, what does foot traffic do to, like, liberating the human spirit? Or what does foot traffic mean for, for a city, for city life? I mean, there's the famous Jane Jacobs books, you know, The Life and Death of the American City, I think is what it's called. Having sidewalks, having people who are on predetermined paths that they move through, for better or worse, through the places where they live and having in that way to meet each other and to interact with each other, even if it's just, you know, walking by each other in the most literal sense. And that certainly still exists on Fremont as it is now, but it's all mediated by commerce. I realize that it's kind of asinine to say this about a a street, you know, is populated only by casinos. But, you know, now you walk down the street and there's people selling food, there's people selling portraits, there's street performers, you know, the whole thing is set up like a kind of carnival midway. And I think that does change the sense that anybody there has about whether or not they're meant to interact with each other. They're meant to interact with the things that they can purchase or witness, and they're not meant to interact with the other people who are there. So I I think that's part of it. I mean, it also, of course, shunts off that sort of main commercial drag now made for a kind of like safety and ease of consumerism. The other parts of Las Vegas that existed and still do. Um, but that existed in with much more prominence in the 90s when I was a teenager, like prostitution. It's a strange thing to lament, like, oh, I don't get to see hookers anymore when I go to Las Vegas. But at the same time, I think that was my, as a rural kid, that was my experience of urban life. It was my experience of difference. It was my experience of people living on the margins in ways that I didn't have access to growing up on a farm. To me, that engendered a lot of empathy and sense of like connection and relation. So I think that's a big part of why Fremont Street as it exists now seems to me kind of a travesty. Well, and also in a pre, um, pre-internet pre era, I mean, how else are you going to learn about other ways of life, other kinds of people, except to actually see them in the world and bump into them? And does contemporary Las Vegas still have a kind of pull for you? Um, the way it, Do you still go back there? Not really. I think the last time I was there was about 10 years ago. But now it just feels like it's crowded. It's kind of crass in an empty way. You know, going down to the strip, just the street, the sidewalks that exist, and there aren't that many, are so crowded. And it's, it, you know, it's the desert. It's 10,000 degrees. And Money means something different to me than it did when I was 18, like now that I make my own and have to pay my own bills and and all of that stuff. So it doesn't really hold as much appeal to me now. I think I learned from it what I needed to learn from it. And like a bad relationship, (laughs) you move on. I'm just wondering, both in your relationship with your grandmother and maybe other relationships you've had, like how have you forged those intergenerational queer relationships? 
well, I think I've been lucky to, I mean, on the one hand, but yeah, I mean, I have a number of people in my life. Uh, I mean, I had my grandmother to some degree. I actually don't know whether she was queer or not. She identified with my difference, but I think that was largely because she identified with difference. But I've had other people, you know, I have a kind of great aunt in law who's 80 something and lives in San Francisco and, you know, moved out when she was 20 in the 60s or whatever it was and lived her life, left Philadelphia and lived her life. And and I think those people are a kind of repository of stories that didn't make it into the larger world for fear of repercussion or imprisonment or other kinds of trouble. And so, you know, they have to be kind of passed along as a as a kind of oral history and hopefully now, you know, written about that we can go back and and find the archives that exist, whether they're conventional or not, and tell the stories that didn't get told and write those people back into the historical record. And I think that's very important. I know for me, as a queer kid born into a straight family, you know, the library is like the only reason I'm alive, I think, you know, that I could go and that people had written books about their queer experiences. And not just that, but they'd written books about different ways of being women, whether that had to do with desire directly or not. And that kind of knowledge production and transmission is absolutely essential and the lifeline that we have to anything like ancestry, which I really do people, I really do believe people need in order to feel at home in the world. So I, you know, I hope that that's my way also of giving back with my life is to, to do that, to do that work and make it available for other people. My last question is, uh, you are one of the few writers that I know who, as far as I understand, came to the creative writing world from the PhD lit side of the hallway. I don't know uh, too many people who have made that transition. And I'm just curious what that was like. I'm curious how writing fiction and creative nonfiction emerged from your studies of literature. I think I always wanted to be a writer. I think I was a working class kid from a small town and a really rural background, and that didn't seem in any way practical. And I think, you know, I mean, getting a PhD in English is only arguably marginally more practical, but but it did seem like a profession, right? And there was a track that one got on. And you went to college and you studied these things and then you went to graduate school and you got this terminal degree and then you went and you taught others. And that was that was a job. That was a job. That was a career you could have. And so I think a lot of it was just that it felt that way to me. I didn't think that what I needed to know to be a writer was instruction in writing. I thought that what I needed was to know about literature and to know about the world and to know about history. And that to me was what a writer knew. I went to graduate school to get a PhD in literature because I thought that was what I needed to gather in order to be the kind of writer I wanted to be. That's why I did it that way. And then I think getting to teach writing now, I feel slightly differently about that idea. What got me from getting a doctorate to getting to write novels was just 
luck again. The fact that I was invited to come to Stanford and that I get to be here and that I I get to do the work that I get to do here. The transition from one to the other was like an external divinity in a way. Thank you so much, Shannon, for being with us here on Off the Page and talking about all of this. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.